Okay. All right. So, friends, we are continuing today in our series through the book of Genesis. And if you're not too familiar with the Bible, if this is your first time maybe even opening the Bible or studying the Bible, Genesis is in the beginning of the Bible. And being the first book in the Bible, this, this book really is a book of beginnings. It's a book of beginnings. It's the Bible's claim as to how everything was created, right? This is how the world was created. This is how human beings were created, we were told a few chapters ago. This is why marriage was created. We even see this is why culture exists. It's, it's a book of beginnings. It's the beginning of everything. And it's a lot more practical than, than it might sound at first. How so? Well, because unless you know the beginning of something, unless you know the, the originating of something, why something exists, you won't really know how to handle it well, right? So, for example, you know, if you buy a product, but you don't really know how it works, and you've tried everything, you know, with your own creativity, but it just still won't work quite right. Well, who's the best person for you to call and ask to help you out? Well, it's the guy who made it or the girl who made it, right? Go back to the factory, call up the person who made it, and hear what he or she has to say about it, and that's going to help you use that tool better. And the book of Genesis, in some ways, can be described in this way. It can be described as God letting us into the factory a little bit. It can be described as God explaining to us, look, this is why everything exists. This is why marriage exists. This is why culture exists. This is why you exist. It's kind of like God letting us into the, into the factory. It's, you could say, life's product manual page. This is why everything exists. And in our passage today... What we're given is insight yet to the creation of another thing, to the origin story of another thing. But now, because sin already entered the world in Genesis chapter 3, what we see today is the origin of something that's not good. Not good. Our passage today gives us the origin story of shame. The origin story of shame. It's that thing you feel when an old locked-up memory pops up behind your head without permission. You know that feeling? It's that, it's that thing you feel when those, um, uh, those prolonged WhatsApp responses you realize are actually hints of rejection. It's that thing that makes you feel you never, ever have enough money. It's that thing that some cultures would even consider worse than death itself. It's shame. It's powerful. We all feel it. It directs our steps. It dictates our decisions. There's even moments where it's consumed you and me. The question is, where did it come from? What's its origin story? And how do we handle it well? And look, what the Bible is saying here, unless you have the right answer to those questions, you're not going to survive outside of Eden. You won't. You've got you to figure out how to handle it, okay? So let's, let's get into God's Word, taken uh, in Genesis chapter 3, verse 8 to 13. This is God's Word. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves in the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? 
And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you've done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. Thus says the Lord. There's at least three things we see here in our passage about shame. First, the nature of it. Second, the man-made solution for it. And third, the God who removes it. Three things. The nature of it, the man-made solution for it, and God who removes it. Let's start with our first point, the nature of shame. So I was thinking about how to maybe bring this up from our passage in a way that, that's helpful and, and, and still kind of from the passage itself. And, and I think we see here in our passage at least three similarities between shame and its younger brother, guilt. Shame and guilt. Shame is similar to but also more than guilt. Okay, let's, let's talk about the similar part first and then the difference. How is shame similar to guilt? Uh, in two ways. In, in this passage, we see that both shame and guilt are transcendental and representational. Let me explain what those mean. It's, it's transcendental and representational. First, shame is transcendental. Look at verse 8. Whose presence induced or birthed this feeling of shame out of Adam and Eve's heart? Whose presence? God's presence. Right? It says, and the sound, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves in the presence of the Lord God. It was God's presence. It was the existence of the transcendent. That's the first thing that induced the feeling of shame in this way in man's heart to where they had to hide. But, but think about this. Does this mean, therefore, that God's presence, the presence of the transcendence, is a bad thing, is evil? and it makes us feel shame. Well, no, it doesn't. Actually, it's the opposite. It's the same conceptually with guilt. Guilt is also transcendental in, in nature. What, what do I mean? For example, we all know that murdering someone because of their race is wrong, right? We all agree on that, I hope, right? Murdering someone because of their race is wrong, okay? Or, you know, refusing education to someone because of their gender is wrong. And whoever does that is guilty, right? We all know that. We all agree. However, these two things are things that have in the past and actually currently is made legal by certain countries on earth. Now, if the lawmaker of those countries come to you and say, well, but you know what? We all got together and we agreed uh, that this is going to be our nation's laws. Who are you to tell us it's wrong? What would you say? You would say, I hope, well, I'm not telling you it's wrong. It's just wrong. <laughs> Murdering someone because of their race and, and, and discriminating someone because of their gender is just wrong. I don't care what your laws say. But you see what you just said in that sentence. What you just said is that you're assuming right and wrong, guilt and innocence, transcends human laws. It transcends even human opinions. It's just right and wrong. There is apparently, you and I believe, based on that argument, a transcendent standard of truth, 
goodness, and beauty that they've violated. You see, guilt is transcendental. It goes all the way to the top, not just based on human laws. Similar to shame here in our passage today. As soon as this transcendent source of truth and goodness and beauty walks by, sinful man feels shame. Sinful man feels embarrassed, but it's not because God is evil or mean or overbearing or unreasonable. It's the opposite. It's because He's holy and He's good and He's, he's right and pure and honorable. Shame, the Bible is making the claim here, is ultimately transcendentally induced, not just horizontally. Okay, that's why it exists. It's the thing that sinful people like us feel when God's around. And the problem is, we're always sinful, and He's always around. It's transcendental. But second, it's also representational. It's representational. Shame, like guilt, doesn't only exist because of the transcendent. It's also structurally representational. What, what do I mean? Look at the order of the people called out here by God in our passage. Notice who got called out first. Adam. Now, remember the story from last week, a few weeks ago? You know, who started this whole mess, really? If you look at it purely from a chronological order of events, whose fault is it? Who should have been blamed first? Satan, right? And then who? Who ate the, the fruit first? It was Eve, and then Eve tempted Adam, and Adam ate it last. But yet, here, who does God call out to the stands first? It was Adam. It was Adam first. Verse 9, but, to the Lord, but the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? Adam was called up first to the stands. But why? He ate it last. But yet he was called up first. Well, because what we see here, the claim in Genesis chapter uh, 3, is that shame is represent, representative. So, for example, whoever is representing the group is the one that's held responsible. And it was Adam that was given the task to work and keep the garden, was it not? Well, how is this fair? Well, let's think about it this way. If you buy a product or procure a service and they under-deliver, right? They don't give you what you paid for and it's just a, a total mess and you're upset, what do you do? You call the manager. And the manager starts blaming everyone else in his team. It's not my fault. It's this person's fault. It's that person's fault. What do you say? You go, probably, look, you are absolutely right. Teams are complicated. People make mistakes. But at the end of the day, you're the manager. The buck stops with you. You represent them. You're leading. That's why leaders get paid a little more because they get all the blame. And you got to make up for their mistakes. Guilt is representational. So is shame. I remember one day um, I made a, a, a dad joke to Elena and to her friends. And I personally thought it was a great one. But the children disagreed. <laughs> it just didn't, didn't land, you know? So they, they just, after the joke, they just looked at me with blank stares. And I'm like, oh, that, that didn't hit. <laughs> and Elena, I just saw her, you know, looking down going, oh, my gosh. Like, that is so embarrassing. 
But it's like, think about it. Why is she embarrassed? It was my bad joke, not hers, yet she's the one embarrassed. Why? Well, because shame is representational. I represent her. My embarrassment is her embarrassment. That's why Adam was called up here first. You're the representative. This is on you. And it transfers to whomever it is you represent. That's what the book of Romans, the New Testament says, that through the disobedience of one man, both guilt and shame entered the world, all of us who he represents. So, like guilt, shame here in the biblical worldview is both transcendental and representational. But there is in this passage we see one element of shame that's different than guilt. It's not found in guilt. What is it? Well, unlike guilt, shame here in this passage is embodied. It's embodied. What do I mean? You see, guilt, technically, it's a legal phrase, right? You've done something wrong. The guilty thinks, I've done something bad. But shame, what it does, it doesn't stop at the legal level. Shame morphs legal guilt into personal identity. So someone who's laden with shame wouldn't just say, I've done something bad. They'd move beyond that and say, I am bad. I am bad. And therefore, what needs to be hidden behind the shadows, they think, is not just my bad deeds. It's me. I need to be hidden. I'm the thing that needs to be tucked away within the shadows. And that's exactly why Adam and Eve here, when they heard God come by, what did they do? They hid themselves. Their response wasn't, don't look at what I've done. Their response was, don't look at me. Don't look at me. They couldn't stand the divine gaze. And it's always the gaze, isn't it? It's the eyes. It's like you come late to a very important meeting at work, and probably you're the one presenting but you, your alarm didn't work, and, and you, you, you walk into that door. And on one hand, you're guilty, legally speaking, right, because you broke the laws of the meeting. But what you really dread isn't the legal guilt that comes with being late. What is it that you really dread? It's the eyes. <laughs> it's the gazes that you know will follow you all the way from that door as you stumble your way to your chair. It's the gaze that you can't bear. Adam and Eve couldn't stand the divine gaze. It was too much, and it lasts longer than just a few seconds, and he sees more than just our actions. He sees everything all the time, and it's too much for sinful people like us to bear. So, you know what we do? Second point, we come up with man-made solutions to avoid this divine gaze. We come up with strategies, just like Adam and Eve here. In order to deal with the divine gaze, what did they do? They did mainly two things. (coughs) Excuse me. Two things. First, they try to hide from it. Second, they try to redirect it. What do they want to do with this divine gaze? They want to hide it and redirect it. Let's talk about first, they wanted to hide from it. Look at the end of verse 8. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. 
and the man and his wife hid themselves in the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. They hid. Maybe they thought in their heads, if we can't see him, he can't see us. But then God called Adam from out of the trees, and he asked, where are you? And immediately Adam knew it was over. He knew it was over. How do we know that he knew it was over? Because he didn't go, sweet, he doesn't know where we are. Let's stay here, Eve. You know, he doesn't know. He knew that God knew. That's why he didn't keep hiding. That's why he got out. (laughs) Where are you? This wasn't a question. This was a summoning. Where are you? So Adam came out from behind those trees and said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. I didn't want to deal with those eyes, he said. And now you may be thinking to yourself, Adam, a tree? He's God. Like you're hiding behind a tree. Really? You think that's going to work? But before we call Adam silly here, let me ask you, what is a tree? I mean, I know you know what a tree is, but in Genesis, in the poetic nature of this book, things are more than just what it seems. What is a tree? Well, originally, trees in Genesis were created to add beauty and goodness to the earth. It was meant to bear fruit for mankind. It's beautiful, it's useful, but yet, driven by sin and shame, Adam and Eve turned something that was good into a place of hiding from the divine gaze. A commentary I read said, that which God made for goodness and beauty, now used for hiding. And to be honest, you know, think about our own lives. We know that these are the best kinds of things to hide behind, aren't they? Not the bad things. We know that the bad things do the opposite. They actually attract the divine gaze. But, you know, we think to ourselves, something beautiful, something good, that'll do. Something like, I don't know, tithing. Tithing's good, right? Right? Okay, I'm just checking there. No one said right, so I'm scared here. Tithing is a good thing. But you know, the best way to make yourself feel better after a long week of sinful debauchery, you know what you, you, know what you do to feel better? Just give a little extra on Sunday. That'll do the trick. That'll make you feel a bit better. Just give a little more. That's a great place to hide your shame behind. Or serve at church. Lead Bible studies. Give your money to the poor. Recycle. I don't know. These are great things. These are beautiful things. But if you think that those things can hide your shame from the divine gaze, you'll be very disappointed when you see it. Be very disappointed. It doesn't work. Hiding your shame doesn't work. But think about it. Even if it did work, even if it did work, you know, the best case scenario is that you have a God that's very easily manipulated. You really want a God like that? A judge like that ruling the world? You want a judge who could be blinded and bought by beauty? No one does. Hiding doesn't work. So what did Adam and Eve do next? Well, if I can't hide, they thought themselves, I'll redirect it. That's the second strategy, right? So they came out from behind those trees, and God said, (coughs) (coughs) sorry, God said, who told you that you were naked? 
Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded not to eat? And how did Adam answer? He said, it's the woman's fault. The woman you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Now, behold, here we see a very common strategy that redirectors, professional blame shifters, use all the time. And it's the illusion of no choice. It's the illusion of no choice. Look at what he said. It's her fault. She gave me the fruit and I ate. Like, she gave it to me and I ate. What else am I going to do? It's like, say no. That's one option. Don't make it sound like you have no choice. But then on top of that, Adam didn't only blame Eve. Adam blamed God. It's, it's the woman you gave me. The woman you gave me, God, you know, you gave her to me. What else am I going to do? I'm trapped in this prison. If you just gave me a different wife, I'd be a much better man. I had no choice. Come on. Eve here did the same thing, by the way. God turned to Eve and asked, what is it that you've done? She goes, a snake. The snake tempted me, and I ate. What else am I going to do? It's again, you know could have said no. <laughs> Professional blame shifters always present the illusion of no choice. But God wasn't fooled. How do you know he wasn't fooled? Because next week we see him pronouncing curses. <laughs> it doesn't work. Just like hiding from the divine gaze, redirecting the divine gaze, it won't work. And again, even if it did work, think about it. What's your best case scenario? You'd have a very foolish God. <laughs> You want a judge like that ruling the earth? You know, you want a judge with such a gullible predisposition, having authority and power over what's right and wrong? Of course not. You want justice upheld. You shouldn't want hiding to work on God. You shouldn't want redirecting to work on God. You know what you should want? You should want, here's what you should want. You should want a pair of divine eyes that sees through all the smokescreen. A pair of divine eyes that sees through all the subtle lies. That is the only way to true justice and peace. That's the only way that they'll be guaranteed at the end. That's what we want. But at the same time, that's also what we don't want. We don't want that. Because if such eyes exist, this means our hiding strategies, our blame shifting, our redirecting, our smoke screens, it won't work on him either. So we're caught in this dilemma, right? What do we do? On one hand, we want him to stop looking, but we also don't. So what do we do? Well, the answer, our passage tells us, is not to make him stop looking. That won't work. The answer is to change how he looks at us to change how he looks at us, which brings us to our last point, the God who removes our shame. Now, I get how this passage can, can make us think, you know, man, God is just evil. He's so mean. He's unbearable, right? He just won't let Adam and Eve off the hook, keeps pressing in, keeps asking these questions. But, you know, honestly, if God were to be truly fair and truly just, he shouldn't have bothered with any questions at all. You know what he should have done? He should have just zapped them. You remember what the deal was? The deal was, if you eat of this fruit, you will surely die. But instead, 
of immediately zapping them with eternal wrath, what God did here is he took the time to ask them questions. Ask them questions, and very empathetic ones at that. Look at these questions again. Where are you? God asked in verse 9. Now, again, we know God's all-knowing, so obviously he didn't need to find out where his geographical proximity was to them. He knew exactly where they were. So, so then what's the purpose of this question? Well, it's not for God's sake to find out his geographical proximity to them. This question was asked for Adam and Eve's sake, to have a second to self-reflect about where they are in relational proximity to God. Where are you? God's asking Adam and Eve here. You know, sometimes I'll go on a date with Tati, and my mind's not there. You know, I'm at work, I'm somewhere else, and Tati would go, where are you at? She'd do it much nicer than that. I'd say, where are you? You here? Are you with me? Where are you in relational proximity to God? Maybe a question we need to hear today. And having this question asked made Adam a little uncomfortable, so his answer was very surface level, right? He avoided the real issue, and he kind of gave like a surface, like, oh, I was hiding. It's like, okay, conversation done. Like, like is that it? Again, like professional redirectors were very good at giving partial surface-level answers to avoid the main issue. I was hiding. But even now, even after Adam and Eve are avoiding God, not wanting to admit their fault, God still um, remained patient with them. And like a master counselor asked another prying question in verse 11, again, not for his sake, but for the sake of Adam and Eve's own heart discovery. Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Eve did it. It's her fault. Eve, what did you do? It's a Satan's fault. None of these questions God asked was, was for his informational lack of data. All of this was done for Adam and Eve's sake. That's what good counselors do. They aid truth discovery through poignant question asking. Where are you? What have you done? God's getting Adam and Eve to see their fault, to bring it to light for hope of reconciliation. But they never did. We never do. We are much more interested in covering up, hiding our sin and our shame than we are about coming back to God. But yet, even now, the zapping didn't come. In this passage, what we see instead is hope. We were given hope where? It's very subtle, but it's very intentional. And it's in the name. It's in God's name. Let me explain. When we read the Genesis story, before God created mankind, he would always introduce himself simply as God or as Elohim, right? God created this, God created that. But then mid-chapter 2 onwards, whenever mankind was created, God's names changed. It was, it's no longer just God or just Elohim. If you read even your English Bibles, it's changed to the Lord God or Yahweh Elohim. And that additional name, Yahweh, we know from Exodus chapter 6, emphasizes God as a covenant-keeping God, God as a relational-keeping God. God loves mankind so much that as soon as mankind entered the picture in Genesis 2, God's name is no longer just God. 
but relational God. And now we read the story. We're in chapter 3, and mankind sinned. They broke the relationship, right? And naturally, we think to ourselves, oh, well, then the name is going to revert back to just God again, right? Because we messed up. But then we look at verse 8 to 9. How does God introduce himself here in the middle of our sin and shame? Even after we sin and stand guilty before God, it's not just God. Who is God there in verse 8 and 9? The Lord God. Still. Yahweh Elohim. Still. The relationship-keeping God. Still. And then even after Adam and Eve denied responsibility, maybe now God will give up. Maybe now he'll go back to just being God. But you look at verse 12. He doesn't. In verse 12, he's again introduced as Yahweh Elohim, the Lord God. And the question is, why? Why? What's God trying to tell us here? Well, he's trying to tell us that even when all hope seems lost, friends, when your sin and shame has consumed you, there's still a way to fix this relationship. And I can tell you what that is, Adam, if you would just stop hiding. We can't get there if you keep pretending I'm not here. You can't, we can't get there if you keep hiding behind beautiful things. We can't get there if you keep hiding behind other people's mistakes. Your shame can't be hidden. It doesn't work. It can only be removed. The only answer is that. But how? How will the relational keeping God remove our shame in order to reconcile again with His people? Well, if you go to the New Testament, this is an interesting passage, at least I find it. You go to Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. This passage gives us a, a perspective of the cross that's a little bit different than all the other perspectives we usually get in the Bible. See, usually when we talk about the cross, we look at it purely from the perspective of guilt removal, right? On the cross, God took, Jesus took our guilt. On the cross, Jesus endured our, our guilt. But you know, you go to Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, and it says this, look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising what? The guilt? Despising the physical pain? No. Jesus, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame. The shame. On the cross, Jesus wasn't just declared guilty. He wasn't just tortured physically. He was shamed. Before what? Before the world's gaze. He was caned publicly. He was mocked and spat on publicly. Thousands of eyes watched him carry that cross as a criminal, stumbling his way to the peak of that hill. And when he got there, all those eyes gazed upon his naked body hanging upon that cursed tree. He endured the shame. And you know what the Bible says? He purchased by enduring all of that shame. He purchased the right, as we saw in our call to worship, he purchased the right to become our high priest. Now, stick with me. What are high priests? What do high priests do? Well, they represent God's people to God. And as we talked about earlier in point one, shame is representational. But oh, so is honor. So is honor. 
Here's the good news of the Bible, friends. Jesus Christ embodied our shame on that cross so that when God sees us, when God gazes upon us, he doesn't just see us. He sees us as represented by the honor and righteousness of Christ. That's how he looks at you now. No matter your sin, no matter what we've done, no matter what other people have done to us, Jesus represents us now, the gospel says, and when God sees us, he sees him. And because when he sees us, he sees him, you know what happens to that terrifying gaze? It becomes tender. It becomes warm. It becomes loving. Look, God's, God's saying here, you can't change the fact that my eyes will always look at you. You can't change that. But I can change how they look at you. I can change how they look at you. On the cross, I will look upon my son with the gaze that you deserve so that I can look upon you with eyes that only he should receive. That's the gospel. That's the good news. And you know what this means for you? This means the divine eyes will still execute justice toward the world. But toward those who receive this gift of salvation, what you justly deserve now because of what Christ has done on the cross is eternal life and divine warmth forever. No, I don't. I've sinned. I know. I know you've sinned. But the one who represents you hasn't. And you're hidden in him. So go. Do beautiful things with your life. Serve at church. Give your money to the poor. Lead Bible studies, community groups. Pray. Recycle. But don't do these things in order to hide God's gaze from you. That won't work. Do it to worship the one whose sacrifice has forever changed God's gaze toward you. Do it for him. You can't hide it. He's got to remove it. And that's the only way you'll be free from it. And we got to let him do that. Oh, this is so important. Friends, you have to receive this offer. You got to rest in this offer. Your shame, it can really wreck you. It can either wreck you and consume you, or it can lead you to Yahweh Elohim. It can lead you to the Lord God through his cross. Let the question God asked Adam echo again in your hearts today. Where are you? Where are you? Let's pray. Father, what a poignant question that we have spent our lifetime avoiding through many things, through pretending you don't exist, through doing good things, beautiful things, through other people's flaws and mistakes. But we are called here 
to finally be free from the impossible task of hiding something too big, and that is our shame. Help our hearts, Father, through your Spirit, behold the offer of the cross, the one who was hanged ashamed for us. He has taken it all. He has covered us. He is in us, and we are in him. Help us remember this truth that when you see us, you don't see our bank account. You don't see our career. You don't see our trauma. You don't see all the shameful things that we think define us. When you see your people, you see your son in whom you are well pleased with. Well done, good and faithful servant. You have said to your son, and you also extend to all of us now who hide in him. Help us now, Father, see him and fall into deeper worship of him as we sing our last song of response. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.